Welcome to this week's presentation from Bethesda, a church community where anyone can belong. We hope that the following presentation encourages you in your faith journey. Thanks for listening. Well, we've been into a series called Doors, and I thought that would have concluded last week. Maybe you have thought that as well, but we're going to dive into one final message um, and we're going to extend the series just for this Sunday and before we change uh, gears, sort of, and go into our Advent series. Let me just do a quick review before we go any further. Just some of you may have missed uh, a Sunday or two here and there. Maybe you've been here for all f- uh, five parts, but yet just need a little reminder. Uh, but just so that we're all on the same page, Pastor Bruce uh, kicked off the series by talking about the door of courage. And uh, in what it takes to overcome fear and trust God so that you can go and live out your faith. And then he got into the second part, which is the door of risk. And he revealed that when we step out, that God steps in and uses us as channels of grace in this world. Uh, Pastor Megan uh, did the third message in this series, and she did the door of distraction. And the importance of resting at the feet of Jesus in order to go deeper as a disciple of Christ. Following that, Pastor Justin shared on the door of purpose and about the need to close the doors of our past using Peter as an example and uh, in order to pursue the door that God wants us to walk through next. Last week, Pastor Bruce shared, shared a word about the door of obedience and the truth that God uses the persistent knock of an imperfect or our, our imperfect faith to show up and to bring about his plan. And today I want to get into Another door, this important door, and that is the door of your heart. The door of your heart. Uh, before I get into the word, we've been looking at some principles of doors in general. I want to touch on that as well. And um, first of all, that every door is a decision point, just some things to keep in mind. Uh, when we come face to face with various kinds of doors in our lives, doors of courage, doors of risk, and so on, we can either choose to walk through them or we can choose to keep the door shut. The decision is left in our hands. Secondly, your future and my future will be shaped by the doors uh, that, that we open and doors that we walk past. There are both positive and negative consequences from walking through doors as well as walking past doors. And uh, so we have to keep that in mind. Uh, thirdly, a, a door may be an opportunity from God, uh, maybe a distraction from others or a trap from the enemy. We, may, we need to be careful and cognizant of the fact that not every open door is from God, and nor is every closed door from the enemy. Uh, we need to have the discernment uh, and the understanding to know the difference between them. Fourthly, if, if an open door is truly from God, it will not contradict, contradict his word. God is not going to open a door to something or someone that does not line up with his purposes, his will, his promises, and the truth that's found in his word. If you're in a relationship, you're in a marriage relationship, God is not going to open the door for you to go out and have an affair. All right? If you're at shopping uh, somewhere in the mall or somewhere at Costco or somewhere else, and you have an opportunity to steal, God is not going to open up a door for you to step out and steal. If you're a student, and we got a lot of wonderful students, some are not here this morning, exam time is right upon us, or upon you. <laughs> I've, 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 I've been there, I understand, but you know, God is not going to open up a door for you to cheat, all right? And most of you, I've talked to you, many of you are, are so intelligent anyways, you don't even need to. So, uh, But does, God's not going to open that kind of door. And uh, doors that God opens are perfectly in line with what his word says. 
And finally, sometimes God shuts a door to protect us. You might really want to walk through a certain door that comes before you, a certain opportunity. But you know what? Sometimes God shuts it because he has your best interests at heart. He can see past down the road of what's going to happen if you walk through the door. And so he shuts it. You may not understand it right away. You may get upset. You may get, you know, just saying, God, I don't understand what in the world's going on. Praying about it and saying, God, I don't understand, right? But at a later time, he may just come and reveal to you, ah, now I understand. You are doing that to protect me and to direct me. And so those are some principles just to keep in mind in general as we have gone through and as we continue to go through today and conclude today as well. Um, The door of your heart. The door of your heart. If you have the Word of God with you, I have it on, it's on version as well. If you have your Bible app uh, installed, you go to version, click events. You'll see Bethesda come up there and uh, click on Bethesda and you can follow all the notes are there. But if you have the Word of God in the genuine leather bound or whatever this is, bonded leather, or if you have it on your phone or whatever, or just uh, what, have you, what have you, and turn to the book of Revelation, the very last book in the New Testament and in the Bible. Uh, so I encourage you to turn there as we uh, look into his Word. We're looking at Revelation chapter 3, and we're going to be starting at the 14th verse down to the 22nd verse. It says, to the angel of the church of Laodicea, write the amen. And this is a description of Jesus here, all right? I don't have time to go into it. I'd love to go into it. I'm just going to touch on it and let you know. Description of Christ. He is the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning or the source of all of the creation of God. says this, I know your deeds and that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot or cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Now, that's an interesting way of hearing something from the Lord. Everyone said amen to that. It was like, oh, okay, all right. Verse 17, because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and have, no need, have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Like, okay, Lord. <laughs> it's an interesting letter you're writing to me. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by the fire so that you may become rich. White garments so that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. And I salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and I discipline. Therefore be zealous and repent. Behold, this is the heart of what I want to say is behold, Jesus says, I stand, I stand at the door and knock. I stand at the door of knock. And this is a message to the church in Laodicea. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and dine with him or her, and he with me. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit with me on my throne as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Everyone said, amen. May God bless his word into our hearing. Let me begin this morning by widening the lens on the book of Revelation for a moment and quickly do a simple four-part outline. Some people find the book of Revelation intimidating. You don't even crack in there. You'll stay in Psalms or some other, maybe some texts that are maybe easier to read. Uh, But it's helpful just to understand some basic things. I'm not going to do a complete breakdown of everything, but just it helps, okay? Uh, First of all, there's an introduction or a prologue. And basically, John, who is also the author of the Gospel of John, uh, you know, fourth book there in the New Testament, and also the three epistles of John, John 1, 2, and 3, 
uh, is revealing that the book of Revelation is a revelation from Jesus. It's a disclosure. It's a revelation from him. It's his revelation. In other words, John is just a messenger. He's just a mouthpiece. He's speaking for Christ. And Christ is speaking through John to reveal truth and reveal the future. And so then we see John's vision and commission by the Lord to write seven letters to uh, seven churches. Each letter is a different letter, just as each church has its own culture. Some include commendations for things they're doing right, and others have condemnations for things they're doing wrong. And some include warnings of what will happen if they don't change their ways. And and some include promises of what's going to happen if they remain faithful to serving the Lord. And then the remainder of the book, the easy part of the book, is chapters 4 to 22, is basically a disclosure of end-time events accumulating with the creation of a new heaven, a new earth. And we see the river of the tree of life. And you, that's a parallel to Genesis. Not going to go into the Garden of Eden, but there's a whole lot of stuff in there I'd love to bring out. But we see the, the river and tree of life where all believers partake in as they live forever with Christ and eternity. And they lived happily. That doesn't say that. But that's an idea, is, is a sense. You know, you're reading those stories. Was this, it's the same sense that John is presenting here. Now, as I mentioned earlier in chapters 2 and 3, John, speaking on behalf of Jesus, writes seven letters to seven churches addressed to the angel of each church. Now, the angel in this context means pastor. Now, I just want to say this. When I was growing up, I thought I was an angel. I tell people when I was growing up, uh, you know, I was, I was the baby of the family, and I say, you know what? I was an angel. I did nothing wrong. I was so good. But you know what? Now that I'm a pastor, I, I actually am an angel. I didn't realize it. All right? He calls him an angel, the pastor there. I don't think I'm an angel yet. Is the Lord here? Okay, good. Um, but anyways, just kidding. But anyways, he writes to the, the, the churches through the pastors in Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, and Philadelphia. Not in Pennsylvania, by the way. And the final letter is written to the church in a place called Laodicea. Now, as we study the history of this city, which if you've got to know the context of the culture in the city in order to understand what he's talking about here, or you just won't get it. Laodicea, first of all, let me break it down, was a rich city. The city was established among a major trade route and, and, and it became a great commercial and banking city, boasting great wealth. One guy by the name of John Walvert, he says that under Roman rule, Laodicea had become wealthy and had a profitable business arising from the production of wool cloth. And it was such a wealthy city that at one point the city got destroyed by a natural disaster. And when, when they were rebuilding the city and it was offered financial assistance, they said, no, we got it. We got it covered. Don't need no help from you or anybody else. We got enough money to take care of everything. But you know what? Their wealth creeped into or created a sense of self-sufficiency. And that self-sufficiency sort of was creeping and ever increasingly creeping to the church, as we'll see in a moment. In addition to being a rich city, we know that Laodicea was a recuperative city. By definition, recuperative means having the effect or restoring health or strength. The city had a school of medicine whose focus was ophthalmology. I know we have a school of medicine right here in St. John's at Munn. And their school of medicine produced a salve, a cream uh, to heal eyes and as well as ear ointments. Skip Isaac says the residents boasts of having a, a cure for eye problems and they made a, a salve or a cream of clay and rubbed it in patients' eyes. 
And so the Laodiceans was a therapeutic city. It was a place where people came to receive medical treatment. And much like St. John's Health Sciences and, and Janeway and so forth, people come here in our city to receive medical treatment. So we can sort of identify with that. It's a place where vision problems were corrected. And so I just want to keep that in your back pocket as, you, as we study the text so you, you understand what it's all about here. Uh, thirdly, like many other places, Laodicea was a religious city. A lot of temples, a lot of pagan temples, a lot of worship to pagan gods. Uh, specifically, the people worshipped a god called Men Karu and, and called on that god for healing and, and for safety and prosperity. Zeus, known in the Greek ancient uh, religion, is also, who's known as the supreme god, was also worshipped there. And so there's a lot of pagan worship, but we also know that there's the churches set up there as well. The church was well established there. We know as we look at the Colossian letter that Paul wrote and, and the book of Colossians, we note that four times he mentions the Laodiceans. And so the church was set up there. It had an, was established there. And the city was then a religious city. It was a city of pagan worship and Christian worship. And to this church in this city, Christ had a very, very important message that he wanted John to bring to them and to deliver to them. And of course, with all the word of God, what was spoken to them, we can take and apply it to our lives as well, all right? And so first of all, Christ's message revealed the indifference of the church of Laodicea. Speaking through John, Jesus says in verse 15 and 16, I know your deeds, that you're neither cold nor hot. I wish you were cold or hot. So because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Here Jesus presents a strong rebuke. It's not one of those amen passages that we sometimes read. But it's arguably the strongest rebuke of all the letters that's sent to these seven churches. He condemns them from being neither hot nor cold, but lukewarm. The Greek word used for lukewarm, chiloros, uh, is only here used once in the New Testament. It's used in this text. Some people have suggested that the reference to hot and cold is a reference to spiritual temperature, to the church being spiritually hot or cold, but I don't think that's the correct interpretation as I study the text. I really think it's about effectiveness and usefulness or the lack thereof. As one commentator says, it is conceivable that Christ would wish that people were spiritually cold or unsaved or hostile. I can't see that happening. That he would want that. Furthermore, the application of hot and cold to spiritual temperature, though familiar to us, would have been completely foreign to first century Christians. The expression cold nor hot may refer to their lack of zeal or their uselessness. They were useless to Christ because they were complacent, self-satisfied, and indifferent to the real issues of faith in him and of discipleship. Because of their wealth and because of their self-sufficient attitude, which was pervasive in the city, the church viewed themselves in like manner as self-sufficient, as needing nothing, and end up drifting in their walk with Christ so much that they became lukewarm and useless in their faith. It's one thing to engage culture, but it's a completely other thing to emulate culture. And this church, the Laodicean church, chose the latter. 
But you know, even though Laodicea had a great amount of wealth, there was a problem that they just could not, money couldn't change it. They couldn't throw enough money at it to fix it. Their affluence wasn't able to solve this problem. And their problem arise with their water supply. And when Christ's message was given to them, this spiritual issue he was raising would have been easily connected. They would have got it, got it right away to the, deal, to the water supply issue that they were dealing with in their city. See, Isaac again says, the residents of Laodicea had one major problem. They had a very poor water supply. Two cities nearby had better water sources. The Laodiceans and the Laodiceans tried to make use of them. Colossae sat at the foot of some huge mountain that supplied the city with an abundant runoff of snow melt. That supplied the, or this, this meant that the water in Colossae was cold and refreshing. The other city, Heropolis, boasted of hot springs and was steaming hot water for baths. The Laodiceans built one aqueduct to bring water in from Colossae and another to bring in water for Heropolis. But by the time the water from Colossae arrived and from Heropolis arrived, it had gone from, or Colossians, oh sorry, from Colossae arrived, it had gone from ice cold to lukewarm. And by the time the water came from Heropolis, it, it arrived, it, 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 was steaming, it was steaming hot to tepid. It had gone from steaming hot to tepid. Jesus played off that dilemma when he rebuked the Laodiceans and said that they had become spiritually lukewarm just like their insipid water. The cold and the hot coming together, lukewarm. In other words, because of their complacency of their faith and because of the lack of zero spiritual zeal and fervor, they had become lukewarm in the sight of God. They were as useless as the tepid water was in their city. And for that, Christ said, you know, when you drink lukewarm water, it's just no good. You're expecting a hot cup of tea. You drink it, whoa, same effect. It's a hot summer day. Someone gives you a glass of water and it's like warm as anything. You're like, oh man, same sort of idea. And church, what Christ speaks to them, he speaks to us as well. And now, I'm so glad that many of you here at Bethesda are not useless. <laughs> I'm so glad that many of you here are, are, are engaged in Christ and taking your next step and you're not just coming and going to church. You're not just attending, but you're following Christ and serving uh, the Lord in some area. You're in a small group, you're giving, you're living out the mission that Christ has for us to fulfill. I, I, I'm so thankful for my church family. But we always have to be on our guard and have our hearts guarded because we can become like the Laodiceans if we allow complacency and apathy to creep into our lives. We must remain engaged and keep growing and, and remain in close connection with Christ for only then will we be, will we be truly effective. And in the words of Paul, only then will we be on a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful for the master, prepared for every good work. Not only does Christ reveal the indifference of the Laodiceans, in the next part of the letter, Christ's message revealed the ignorance of the church there. Because you say, he says, I am rich, in verse 17 and 18, and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked, I advise you to buy gold from me gold refined by the fire so that you may become rich, and white garments that you may be able to clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. And I salve or I cream that, to anoint your eyes so that you may see. The church's attitude of self-sufficiency is clearly seen in verse 17. They thought because of their material possessions and their wealth that they did not need anything from anyone. 
They were completely ignorant of their spiritual condition and while they had everything they needed. Naturally, Christ revealed that they were poor, destitute, spiritually. Christ said that they were wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked and didn't even know it. At least Adam and Eve, when they sinned, they, they were not in the right place with God. They knew right away that they were naked. This church didn't even know that they were naked. They were just not where they should be with God, didn't know what's going on, uh, completely oblivious. It seems that they had the same opinion as the Pharisees who were a group of people that Jesus often ran into. These, it was a religious group of people, funny enough, who thought that because they had wealth that they were blessed by God. God may bless you with wealth, but that doesn't, or you may have wealth, but that doesn't mean that in the same sense that you're blessed by God. You may be, you may not be. But Christ revealed on several occasions the poverty of riches and the riches of poverty in the Gospels and shocked the religious leaders in this church by saying that the poor uh, were, or, or um, sorry, the Pharisees, yeah, uh, that, that the poor were actually the ones who were blessed while they were at, uh, the ones who were disconnected from him on the outside looking in, so to speak. And like I said, by the sounds of it, Christ probably shocked the Laodiceans as well by pronouncing the very same thing over them. You might have money, he says, but you're not where you should be. Your wealth is not an indicator of God's blessing. And because of the lukewarm state that they were in, Christ tells them that they needed to buy three things. He says, you got money? This is what you need to buy. And he mentions three things that they had abundance of in, in life, but they needed in the spirit. He tells them, first of all, buy gold refined by the fire. They were a wealthy city and a wealthy church. They were rich, yet they were poor because of their spiritual lives. Christ, Christ says to them, come buy gold refined by the fire so that you may become rich, really rich, not the kind of rich that you are thinking of. The riches that Christ was talking about could not be earned or found in their bank account. The gold that he was talking about uh, was true riches, which corresponds to the glory of God and the presence of God in their lives. Scholars note that this may well be an allusion to Isaiah when he wrote in 55 and 1, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and, and you who have no money, come, buy and eat, come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Amen. The invitation is to come and get from God what you can't get from the world. Come and get mercy. Come and get grace. Come and get freedom. Come and get peace. Come and get the forgiveness of God. Come and get deliverance. Come and get the presence of God. Come receive the power of God. Come and know him personally. Christ says there are riches that they can know in God that they can't get in this world no matter how much money they have. And church, you can be rich this morning despite what money you have in your bank account. You can be rich because you can know Christ. And the flip side is, I want to warn, you can have money in your account and be poor. So be careful. Secondly, they needed to buy white garments. This is interesting too because they produced black woolen garments is where they made much of their money and their fortune from. Yet even though their clothes naturally had the best, the finest garments around, the best clothing around, the, the name brand stuff, you know, they were naked spiritually. 
Because of this, Christ offered them to, uh, to buy white garments, symbolic of purity and righteousness. So that could only come from being in a relationship with him. He said to purchase this white garment so that you will clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. I mentioned the Garden of Eden once. I want to mention it again that Adam and Eve in the garden discovered their nakedness when sin came upon them and they felt the shame of their sin. But God dealt with their sin and their shame and clothed them by taking the life of an animal. Of course, that pointed to the cross. When God dealt with our sin and our shame by sending his one and only son, Jesus, to die on the cross and by doing so clothed us with his grace and his mercy and his his love. And so Jesus is saying, you might be able to make clothing, the best clothing around, but what you really need is spiritual clothing. And that's only something that you can get from me. Nowhere else. Avalon Mall don't have it. Costco doesn't have it. I alone have it. And church, once again, what Christ desires for each and every person here this morning is that we will be clothed in righteousness. No longer walking around dressed in shame, dressed in sin, but dressed in his royal garments that comes from knowing him, following Christ, having Christ as your personal Savior and Lord. Thirdly, they needed to buy eye salve or eye cream so that they could see, the text says. It's interesting as well that he, as he bragged about their ability to cure eye problems with this cream, this salve that they created. William Barclay says the eye powder of Laodicea was world famous. It was imported in tablet form. And the tablets were ground down and applied to the eye. This Phrygian power was held to be a sovereign remedy for weak and ailing eyes. Christ says you got the ability to heal eyes and cure vision problems. Guess what? You're the ones who are blind. He says, only by living for me and walking with me and having you in your heart, having me the center of your life, can you truly see you're blind. It's ironic. <laughs> and this Phrygian power they created was, and soul was useless to, to deal with the spiritual blindness that was in their lives. And unless they came to Christ and, and made him the center of their lives, confess sin, they would remain in that state blind condition. They needed to come to him to really see. Do you, do you know that you can come to church? You can come to church Sunday after Sunday and still be blind? So, but pastor, I, I, I've been coming here for, since whenever. Do you know that you, not, and that's just not for people to explain. I mean, you can come, to, you can have been coming to church for years and still be blind. Maybe you had a relationship at the beginning. Maybe you, that, see, that's the thing about lukewarmness. It, it, the blindness comes in slowly sometimes. You don't even recognize it. It's when you come face to face with God's amazing grace and mercy and allow his spirit to change you from the inside out that you really begin to see. The hymn writer said, amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found was what? Blind, but now I see. You see, the thing about it is when you give your life to Jesus, you start seeing, but the devil comes in. He wants you to become blind again. Everything that God does, he does reverse of it. 
And that's what his aim is. If God opens a door, he tries to, if God shuts a door, he tries to open it. He does all the things opposite to what God wants in your life. And following Christ's threefold message or his threefold solution to the Laodiceans' ignorance, we see him instructing them of what they need to do. He tells them they need to do two things be zealous for him and repent. It's important to know that Christ was not speaking this rebuke because he, he disliked the church, hated the church, but he was saying this because he loved this church, died on the cross for this church, had a plan and a purpose for this church. He said, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. And so while rebuking and disciplining this church, he was doing so out of love for them. It reminds me of my father saying, this is going to hurt me more than Hurts you. <laughs> Anyways, I wouldn't say nothing because I, it would hurt me more. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> but sometimes it's tough love here. And he loved this church and, and the world so much that he willingly laid down his life. But after coming to faith in Christ down the road, they became lukewarm. And they were not living nowhere near where God expected them to live. Nowhere near the zealous. It was gone for the things of God. They, they still professed to go to, oh, I go to lay it. What church do you go to? Oh, I got a church to us here. Man, did you see what we got decked out in this place? We don't need nothing. For, man, it's a beautiful place. It's awesome. We got the best of everything. But they had, as John Wolvert said, had fallen far short of a true testimony for God, even though they professed to be Christians. And their attitude and actions raised questions concerning the reality of their spiritual life. They got lax in their faith. And the purpose of this rebuke was not to get them to feel bad or, you know, Christ wouldn't wag his finger at them. He was saying, I want you to get back on track before it's too late. And so this rebuke and correction was an act of mercy and love. And what they were to do was to repent of their sin and be zealous for Christ once again. The time for coming back to Christ and making things right had not passed. And they could still turn around and leave their apathy and ignorance behind. You see, to repent is not only to confess wrongdoing and be sorry for it, but it involves a change of direction towards God. Whatever you're going after, God says, repent of that. Come towards me now. Uh, Don't worry, but come towards me. Repent of that. Come. I want you closer. I want your attention. I want your life. And that is all to me what Jesus wants for us to head in a direction that leads towards God to walk in his will, to walk in his ways, to walk in his word and draw closer to him step by step, day by day, so on. And following Christ's instruction to the Laodiceans, we see Christ's invitation to this church. And he says in verse 20, behold, I stand at the door. Like I said, he's not wagging his finger, he's not... He's just standing at the door. He says, behold, I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens up the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. This door is the door of your heart. He's knocking. This is the door of relationship. This is the door of connection. This is the door of knowing Jesus. I mean knowing Jesus. Not just knowing about him, knowing him. The door of eternal life. You know, there have been some great invitations in the word of God. But this has to be one of the most beautiful depictions 
of an invitation from God. Jesus standing at the door, not pounding at the door, just knocking. And to the church that he rebukes for their lukewarm living, he then, and this is what I love about this text, he turns the message right around and invites them to open up the door of their hearts so that he can come in and dine with them. We know that partaking in meals in that culture was an important, it was significant, an important time of fellowship during that time. It was a significant occasion of intimate fellowship with the closest of friends. Sure, goodness, that's, that's like that in our culture. You know, you get together, you invite people in your home, or you go to someone's home and you have food and you have fellowship, right? It's an intimacy there. That's what he wants. He said, I want to be important in your life. I want to be the center of your life. I want you and, and I to, to, to know each other more every day. And in several uh, of the Gospels, we see that Jesus was in the homes of people, and that's what he wanted from them, and the only thing stopping that from happening was them. In prayer meeting a couple weeks ago, I touched on part of the message of the Philadelphians in the previous text, and in that letter, one of the things that Christ says to them is that he has power to open doors that no one can shut, and he can shut doors that no one can open. He can do that to direct, to protect, to guide. He has power to do that. I won't get into all that today. It's, I'll let you read that on your own, but there's just so many things that, that God is able to do. He has power to do that. But here he reveals that in order for them to be in relationship with him and to know him not just as Savior but Lord as well, they had to open the door. This was one door that he was not going to force his way in. In order for them to have Christ in their lives, they needed to open the door and say, Christ, I invite you in. He's speaking to the church here, right? You're saying, we're the church. He's speaking to the church. He wants to be center. He wants to be center. Years ago, an English artist named Holman Hunt painted Revelation 3.20 on a canvas, and he pictured Jesus standing at a nice little glen at the end of a roadway. It's hard to see on that screen. I apologize. I invite you to Google it after the service. Check it out. Holman Hunt painting. Revelation 3.20. And he's knocking on the door in the picture of a cottage. And when he had finished the painting, he invited his buddies to critique his work. They were artists as well. One of them sent home, and there's a problem with the the door itself. You've done a great job. It's a beautiful depiction, but you forgot one thing. It's probably just an error. You probably, you know, you forgot something. There's no doorknob on the door. There's one on this door. But on his painting, it was just flat there. It was just, he forgot. It looked like he forgot to them. He said, I did that on purpose because the door is the opening of the heart and it only can open from the inside. He understood that Jesus would never force himself on anyone. He gently knocks. He won't impose. Whether the door remains closed or open is, is, is dependent upon the person and their heart whom he's knocking on. As the worship team returns, as I bring this to a close, we transition now for our water baptismal service. And if you're a candidate for water baptismal or for our service, you can, you can dart out there now. But I came this morning to let you know that the invitation that Jesus offered that Laodicean church, he offers to everyone here today. He's pleading that 
he would be the center of your heart. If he's not already, he's the center of your heart. And he's standing at the door of our heart too this morning and he's knocking. You know, sometimes it's so busy and we allow busyness. You know, Megan mentioned that in her sermon a couple of weeks ago that, you know, when you see someone at around, how was, it, how was everything? Where are you at? Busy, boy. Busy. Drove. You know? And Christ is doing this the whole time. But you see, man, what we got to do at work? It's just, we're, we're, we're just so busy and or in traveling, we've been on the go, traveling a lot. Or maybe you're a student, you're saying, you know what, you see the papers I gotta do this semester? I'm drove, busy. And he knocks and knocks and knocks. It could be even family and friends. Listen, not, family and friends are a blessing from the Lord for sure, but if he's not at the center, Everything and everyone can, can, can take you away from having him at the center of your lives. Maybe you're here, you're questioning your faith. You know, you, 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 you just don't know where you stand. You vow apathy to come in. He's knocking. And for those not in relationship with Jesus, oh, there we go. And for those, thank you guys. For those not in relationship with Jesus, guess what? He knocks as well. He says, I want to come in and have a relationship with you. He desires to draw close to us and he wants an intimate relationship with us, but we're the ones he need to open the door. We're the ones when life is so busy, we need to say, you know what? I'm going to, I'm going to schedule time with Jesus. Life is busy, yes, but I'm going to put him as my first priority. And for those who do, invite him in. Make room for him in our lives. We see in the final part of Christ's message what happens to those who open the door. And we see in a, we see in a promise, an incentive for the church. He says, he who overcomes, verse 21, I will grant to him or her for that matter to sit down with me on my throne and I, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. If you take the time and I encourage you, you know, in your own time, read Revelation 2, 3, all the letters. But as you go through them all, you'll see a, um, a uh, pattern. Sorry. And you'll see a pattern that Christ in each one presents a promise. And the promise and incentive is for those who overcome that he will grant to them to sit down with him on his throne. Jesus overcame sin, overcame death, overcame hell, overcame the grave by his death on the cross and his resurrection and because of that he will reign forever and ever have a name higher than every other name and will forever reign as king of kings and lord of lords and what Jesus is saying to the church is just as, as, just as I will reign if you will do what I tell you to do and if you open the door to your heart and allow me to come into your life you will overcome just as I have overcome and will reign with me forever and ever Later in Revelation, we see God's plan for us to reign with him. In Revelation 5.10, it says, You have made him to be a kingdom of priests and to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Revelation 20 and 6 
It says, blessed and holy is the one who has has a part in the first resurrection and over the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him a thousand years. And our text speaks of reigning with him. What a change. (laughs) You look at the letter and some people will start to read it and say, oh my, I feel like I'm judged or I feel like, no, 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 no. That's not what Christ is doing in this. What a change from being in danger of being spewed out of the mouth of Christ to reigning with him forever. That is his will. He's saying, you're in danger of this, but that is not my plan and will for your life. I want you to reign with me and rule with me forever and ever and ever and ever. To spend eternity with me. That is my plan and my purpose and my will for your life. Maybe you're here this morning as I was preaching. You can identify with the Laodiceans. Maybe you've allowed indifference or apathy to creep in your life and maybe allowed things to blind you from what you really need. Maybe you've been self-sufficient, walking through life. Maybe you got all your needs taken care of, I don't know. And you've allowed yourself to become lukewarm. Maybe even come to church every Sunday, but you're lukewarm not being used, not in a place, a position to be used of God. If that's you this morning, I want you to hear this word. I'm not coming wagging my finger. I know I need this word in my life. We all need this word. The enemy comes to try to blind the eyes of believers, try to lull us into spiritual apathy. So if that, you know, just hear the word that Christ spoke to through John to his church way back then. I encourage you to follow his instruction and accept his invitation as he knocks on the door and open the door to him. Have him as the center of your life. You know, those who are getting baptized in a moment have opened the door to Jesus. They have, they're publicly saying, I've opened the door. I've invited him in. It's my desire for him to be at the center of my life. That's what they're saying. They're not perfect, just like we're not perfect. But they open the door. They're saying before all of you, I've opened the door. I want to live for Jesus. Asking that every head will be bowed and every eye will be closed. If you could do that for me, it'd be appreciated. Maybe you're here and you can hear Christ knocking on the door of your heart. Maybe you have been so busy lately. Maybe, you know, just you didn't even realize that you were lukewarm. Maybe you didn't even realize coming to church, but you're like, Christ has not been the first place in my life for a while. But this morning as I was preaching this word, you can hear him knocking. And you want to open the door. Why don't you open that door to him this morning? Maybe you're following Christ and as... But like I said, he hasn't been at the center of your life for whatever reason. Maybe you've become lukewarm in your faith, but this morning Christ is knocking. And as he knocks, I encourage you to open the door. Thanks for listening. If you're interested in learning more about our church community, please visit our website, Bethesda.ca, and consider joining us for a gathering soon. 